Book Fifteen, Part Three of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Goldfarb. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, translated by Brooks Moore. Book Fifteen, Part Three. This wonderful event surprised the nymphs and filled Hippolytus with wonder, just as great as when the Etrurian ploughman saw a fate-revealing clod move of its own accord across the fields while not a hand was touching it, till finally it took a human form without the quality of clotted earth, and opened its new mouth and spoke, revealing future destinies. The natives called him Tagus. He was the first who taught Etrurians to foretell events. They were astonished even as Romulus, when he observed the spear which once had grown high on the Palatine, put out new leaves and stand with roots, not with the iron point which he had driven in. Not as a spear it then stood there, but as a rooted tree with limber twigs for many to admire while resting under that surprising shade. Or, as when Kippus first observed his horns in the clear stream, he truly saw them there. Believing he had seen a falsity, he often touched his forehead with his hand, and, so returning, touched the thing he saw. Assured at last that he could trust his eyes, he stood entranced, as if he had returned victorious from the conquest of his foes, and, raising eyes and hands towards heaven, he cried, "'You gods above! Whatever is foretold by this great prodigy, if it means good, then let it be auspicious to my land and to the inhabitants of Quirinus. If ill, let that misfortune fall on me.' He made an offering at new altars built of grassy thick green turf with fragrant fires, presenting wine in bowls, and he took note of panting entrails from new-slaughtered sheep to learn the meaning of the event for him. When an Etruscan seer examined them, he found the evidence of great events as yet obscure, and, when he raised keen eyes up from the entrails to the horns of Kippus, "'O king, all hail!' he cried." For in future time this country and the Latin towers will live in homage to you, Kippus, and your horns. But you must promptly put aside delay, hasten to enter the wide-open gates. The fates command you. Once received within the city, you shall be its chosen king, and safely shall enjoy a lasting reign. Kippus retreated, and he turned his grave eyes from the city's walls, and said, O oh, far, O oh, far away, the righteous gods should drive such omens from me. Better it would be that I should pass my life in exile than be seen a king throned in the capital. Such words he spoke, and forthwith he convoked the people, and the grave and honoured senate. But first he veiled his horns with laurel, which betokens peace. Then, standing on a mound raised by the valiant troops, he made a prayer after the ancient mode, and then he said, There is one here who will be king if you do not expel him from your city. I will show him to you surely by a sign, although I will not tell his name. He wears horns on his head. The augur prophesies that, if he enters this your city, he will give you laws as if you were his slaves. He might have forced his way within your gates, for they stand open, but I have hindered him, although nobody is to him so close as I myself. Good Romans, then, forbid your city to this man, or if you find that he deserves still worse, then bind him fast with heavy fetters, or else end your fears by knowledge of the destined tyrant's death. As murmurs which arise among the groves of pine trees thick above us when the fierce east wind is whistling in them, or as sound produced by breaking waves when it is heard afar off, such the noise made by the crowd. But in that angry stirring of the throng one cry could be distinguished, Which is he? and they examined foreheads, and they sought predicted horns. Kippus then spoke again. The man whom you demand, he said, is here. 
and fearless of the people he threw back the chaplet from his forehead so that all could see his temples plainly wonderful for their two horns all then turned down their eyes and uttered groans and was it possible they looked unwillingly upon that head famed for its merit they could not permit him to remain there long deprived of honours and they placed upon his head the festive chaplet and the senate gave you kippus since you never more must come within the walls a proof of their esteem so much land as your oxen and their plough could circle round from dawn to setting sun moreover they engraved the shapely horns on the bronze pillars of the city gate which for long ages kept his name revered relate o muses guardian deities of poets for you know and the remote antiquity conceals it not from you the reason why an island which the deep stream of tiber closed about has introduced corona's child among the deities guarding the city of famed romulus a dire contagion had invested long the latin air and men's pale bodies were deformed by a consumption that dried up the blood when frightened by so many deaths they found all mortal efforts could avail them nothing and physician's skill had no effect they sought the aid of heaven they sent envoys to delphi centre of the world and they entreated phoebus to give aid in their distress and by response renew their wasting lives and end a city's woe while ground and laurels and the quivers which the god hung there all shook the tripod gave this answer from the deep recesses hid within the shrine and stirred with trembling their astonished hearts what you are seeking here, O Romans, you should seek for nearer you. Then seek it nearer, for you do not need Apollo to relieve your wasting plague. You need Apollo's son. Go then to him with a good omen, and invite his aid. After the prudent senate had received Phoebus Apollo's words, they took much pains to learn what town the son of Phoebus might inhabit. They dispatched ambassadors under full sail to the coast of Epidaurus. When the curved ships had touched the shore, these men in haste went to the Grecian elders there, and prayed that Rome might have the deity whose presence would drive out the mortal ill from their Ausonian nation, for they knew what response unerring had directed them. The counsellors, dismayed, could not agree on their reply. Some thought that aid ought not to be refused, but many more held back, declaring it was wise to keep the god for their own safety, and not give away a guardian deity. And while they talked, discussing it, the twilight had expelled the waning day, and darkness on the earth spread a thick mantle over the wide world. Then in your sleep the healing deity appeared, O Roman leader, by your couch, as in his temple he is used to stand, holding in his left hand a rustic staff. Stroking his long beard with his right, he seemed to utter from his kindly breast these words, Forget your fears, for I will come to you and leave my altar. But now look well at the serpent with its binding folds entwined around this staff, and accurately mark it with your eyes, that you may recognize it. I will transform myself into this shape, but of a greater size. I will appear enlarged, and of a magnitude to which a heavenly being ought to be transformed. The god departed, when he said those words, and sleep went when the god and words were gone, and genial light came when the sleep had left. The morning then dispersed fire-given stars. The envoys met together, in much doubt, within the temple of the long-sought god. They prayed the god to indicate for them, by clear celestial tokens, in what spot he wished to dwell. Scarce had they ceased the prayer for guidance, when the god, all glittering with gold and as a serpent, crest-erect, sent forth a hissing as to notify a quick approach, and in his coming shook his statue and the altars and the doors, the marble pavement and the gilded roof. Then up to his breast the serpent stood erect within the temple. He gazed on all with eyes that sparkled fire. The waiting multitude was frightened, but the priest, his chaste hair bound with a white fillet, knew the deity. "'Behold the god!' he cried. "'It is the god!' 
Think holy thoughts and walk in reverent silence all who were present. O oh, most beautiful, let us behold you to our benefit, and give aid to this people that performs your sacred rites. All present then adored the deity as bidden by the priest. The multitude repeated his good words, and the descendant of Aeneas gave good omen with their feelings and their speech. Nodding well pleased and moving his great crest, the god at once assured them of his favor and hissed repeatedly with darting tongue, and then he glided down the polished steps, turned back his head, and, ready to depart, gazed on the altars he had known for so long, a last salute to the temple of his love. While all the people strewed his way with flowers, the great snake wound in sinuous course along, and, passing through the middle of their town, came to the harbor and its curving wall. He stopped there, and it seemed that he dismissed his train and dutiful attendant crowd, and with a placid countenance he placed his mighty body in the Ausonian ship, which plainly showed the great weight of the god. The glad descendants of Aeneas all rejoiced, and they sacrificed a bull beside the harbor, wreathed the ship with flowers, and loosed the twisted hawsers from the shore. As a soft breeze impelled the ship, within her curving stern the god reclined, his coils uprising high, and gazed down on the blue Ionian waves. So wafted by favoring winds, they came in six days to the shores of Italy. There he was born past the Licinian Cape, ennobled by the goddess Juno's shrine, and Scylacian coasts. He left behind Iapigia, then he shunned Amphrisian rocks upon the left, and on the other side escaped Cocynthian crags. He passed nearby Romicium and Caulon and Naricia, crossed the Sicilian Sea, went through the strait, sailed by Pelorus and the island home of Aeolus, and by the copper mines of Temisa. He turned then toward Leucosia and towards mild Pistum, famous for the rose. He coasted by Capreae and around Minerva's promontory, and the hills ennobled with Serentine vines, from there to Herculaneum and Stabiae, and then Parthenope, built for soft ease. He sailed near the Cumaean Sibyl's temple. He passed the warm springs and Linternum, where the mastic trees grow, and the river called Volturnus, where thick sand whirls in the stream, over to Sinuessa's snow-white doves, and then to Antium and its rocky coast. When with all sails full spread the ship came in the harbour there, for now the seas grew rough, the god uncoiled his folds, and gliding out with sinuous curves and all his mighty length, entered the temple of his parent where it skirts that yellow shore. But when the sea was calm again, the Epidorian god, departing from his father's shrine, where he a while had shared the sacred residence, reared to a kindred deity, furrowed the sandy shore with weight of crackling scales. Again he climbed into the lofty stern, and, and near the rudder laid his head at rest. There he remained, until the vessel passed by Castrum and Lavinium's sacred homes to where the Tiber flows into the sea. There all the people of Rome came rushing out, mothers and fathers, and even those who tend your sacred fire, O Trojan goddess Vesta, and joyous shouted welcome to the god. Wherever the swift ship steered through the tide, they built up many altars in a line, so that perfuming frankincense with smoke crackled along the banks on either hand, and victims made the keen knives hot with blood. The serpent deity has entered Rome, the world's new capital, and, lifting up his head above the summit of the mast, looks far and near for a congenial home. The river there, dividing, flows about a place known as the island. On both sides an equal stream glides past dry middle ground. And here the serpent child of Phoebus left the Roman ship, took his own heavenly form, and brought the morning city health once more. Apollo's son came to us from abroad, but Caesar is a god in his own land. The first in war and peace, he rose by wars which closed in triumphs, and by civic deeds to glory quickly won, and even more his offspring's love exalted him as a new, a heavenly sign, and brightly flaming star. 
Of all the achievements of great Julius Caesar, not one is more ennobling to his fame than being father of his glorious son. Was it more glorious for him to subdue the Britons guarded by their sheltering sea, or lead his fleet victorious up the stream seven-mouthed of the papyrus-bearing Nile, to bring beneath the Roman people's rule rebel Numidia, Libyan Juba, and strong Pontus, proud of Mithridates' fame, to have some triumphs and deserve far more, than to be father of so great a man, with whom, as ruler of the human race, O gods, you bless us past all reckoning. And lest that son should come from mortal seed, Julius Caesar must change and be a god. When the golden mother of Aeneas was aware of this, and saw a grievous end plotted against her high priest, saw the armed conspiracy preparing for his death, with pallid face she met each god and said, Look with what might this plot prepares itself against my cause, with how much guile it dooms the head which is the last that I have left from old-time Eulus, prince and heir of Troy. Shall I alone be harassed through all time by fear well-grounded? First the son of Tidius must wound me with his Caledonian spear, and then I tremble at the tottering walls of ill-defended Troy. I watch my son driven in long wanderings, tossed upon the sea, descending to the realm of silent shades and waging war with Turnus, or, if I should speak the truth, with Juno. Why do I recall disasters of my race from long ago? The present dread forbids my looking back at ills now past. See how the wicked swords are wetted for the crime. Forbid it now, I pray you, and prevent the deed. Let not the priest's warm blood quench vestal fires. Such words as these, full of her anxious thoughts, Venus proclaimed through all the heavens, in vain. The gods were moved, and since they could not break the ancient sister's iron decree, they gave instead clear portents of approaching woe. It is declared, resounding arms heard from the black clouds, and unearthly trumpet blasts and clarions heard through all the highest heavens forewarned men of the crime. The sad sun's face gave to the frightened world a livid light, and in the night-time torches seemed to burn amid the stars, and often drops of blood fell in rain-showers. Then Lucifer shone blue with all his visage stained by darksome rust. The chariot of the moon was sprinkled with red blood. The Stygian owl gave to the world ill omens. In a thousand places tears were shed by the ivory statues. Dirges, too, are said to have been heard, and threatening words by unknown speakers in the sacred groves. No victim gave an omen of good life. The fibres showed great tumults imminent. The liver's cut-off edge was found among the entrails. In the forum, it is said, and round men's homes and temples of the gods, dogs howled all through the night, and silent shades wandered abroad, and earthquakes shook the city but portents of the gods could not avert the plots of men and stay approaching fate. Into a temple naked swords were brought, into the senate-house. No other place in all our city was considered fit for perpetrating such a dreadful crime. With both hands Cytheria beat her breast, and in a cloud she strove to hide the last of great Aeneas' line, as in times past she had hid Paris from fierce Menelaus, Aeneas from the blade of Diomed. But Jove, her father, cautioned her and said, do you, my daughter, without aid, alone, attempt to change the fixed decrees of fate? Unaided, you may enter the abode of the three sisters, and can witness there a register of deeds the future brings. These, wrought of brass and solid iron with vast labor, are unchangeable through all eternity, and have no weakening fears of thunder-shocks from heaven nor from the rage of lightnings. They are perfectly secure from all destruction." You will surely find the destinies of your descendants there, engraved in everlasting adamant, tis certain. 
I myself have read them there, and I with care have marked them in my mind. I will repeat them so that you may have unerring knowledge of those future days. Venus, the man on whose behalf you are so anxious, already has completed his allotted time. The years are ended which he owed to life on earth. You, with his son, who now as heir to his estate must bear the burden of that government, will cause him, as a deity, to reach the heavens and to be worshipped in the temples here. The valiant son will plan revenge on those who killed his father, and will have our aid in all his battles. The defeated walls of scarred Mutina, which he will besiege, shall sue for peace. Pharsalia's plain will dread his power, and Macedonian Philippi be drenched with blood a second time. The name of one acclaimed as great shall be subdued in the Sicilian waves. Then Egypt's queen, wife of the Roman general Antony, shall fall, while vainly trusting in his word, while vainly threatening that our capital must be submissive to Canopus' power. Why should I mention all the barbarous lands and nations east and west by ocean's rim? Whatever habitable earth contains shall bow to him. The sea shall serve his will. With peace established over all the lands, he then will turn his mind to civil rule, and as a prudent legislator will enact wise laws, and he will regulate the manners of his people by his own example. Looking forward to the days of future time and of posterity, he will command the offspring born of his devoted wife to assume the imperial name and the burden of his cares. Nor till his age shall equal Nestor's years will he ascend to heavenly dwellings and his kindred stars. Meanwhile, transform the soul which shall be reft from this doomed body to a starry light, that always God like Julius may look down in future from his heavenly residence upon our forum and our capital. Jupiter hardly had pronounced these words when kindly Venus, although seen by none, stood in the middle of the senate-house and caught from the dying limbs and trunk of her own Caesar his departing soul. She did not give it time so that it could dissolve in air, but bore it quickly up toward all the stars of heaven, and on the way she saw it gleam and blaze and set it free. Above the moon it mounted into heaven, leaving behind a long and fiery trail, and as a star it glittered in the sky. There, Wondering at the younger Caesar's deeds, Julius confessed they were superior to all of his, and he rejoiced because his son was greater even than himself. Although the son forbade men to regard his own deeds as the mightier, fame, that moves free and untrammeled by the laws of men, preferred him even against his own desire, and in that one point disobeyed his will. And so great Atreus yields to the greater fame of Agamemnon, Aegeus yields to Theseus, and Peleus to Achilles, or, to name a parallel befitting these two gods, so Saturn yields to Jove. Now Jupiter rules in high heavens, and is the suzerain over the waters and the world of shades, and now Augustus rules in all the lands, so each is both a father and a god. Gods who once guarded our Aeneas when both swords and fire gave way, and native gods of Italy, and Father Quirinus, patron of Rome, and Eugratius too, the sire of Quirinus the Invincible, and Vesta, hallowed among Caesar's gods, and Phoebus ever worshipped at his hearth, and Jupiter who rules the citadel high on Tarpeia's cliff, and other gods, all gods to whom a poet rightfully and with all piety may make appeal. Far be that day, postponed beyond our time, when great Augustus shall forsake the earth which he now governs, and mount up to heaven from that far height to hear his people's prayers. 
and now i have completed a great work which not jove's anger and not fire nor steel nor fast consuming time can sweep away whenever it will let that day come which has dominion only over this mortal frame and end for me the uncertain course of life yet in my better part i shall be born immortal far above the stars on high and mine shall be a name indelible wherever roman power extends her sway over the conquered lands i shall be read by lips of men if poets' prophecies have any truth, through all the coming years of future ages I shall live in fame. End of Book 15, Part 3 End of Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso, Translated by Brooks Moore